Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Emily Dufton, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Travis Reeder about his new book, In Pain, a bioethicist's personal struggle with opioids, which was released earlier this year by HarperCollins. Reader is a professor, bioethicist, and writer at Johns Hopkins University. In Pain is his first book. Dr. Travis Reader, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Before we discuss In Pain, I wonder if you could begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I'm a philosopher by disciplinary training. I did my PhD in philosophy at Georgetown University. And then I kind of slowly moved into bioethics, which is a weird sort of field. It's very multidisciplinary. And so philosophers sometimes work in this field, but I also work with lots of clinicians and public health folks. And so um, that really requires more training uh, after a doctorate. And so I moved to Johns Hopkins in 2014 for a postdoc in bioethics and then was just very lucky that Johns Hopkins is the kind of place that gets its claws into you and doesn't let you go. <laughs> so, uh, so I came as a postdoc and then like very many of my colleagues just kind of never quite extracted myself. And so I moved into my current faculty position in 2015. You achieved the academic dream. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it does feel like winning the lottery. <laughs> now, you have possibly one of the most unique and horrifying personal stories about embarking on a book writing project. What inspired you to write In Pain? Uh, Yeah, I mean, so there's like the physical inspiration and then the kind of intellectual inspiration. Um, (laughs) I mean, yeah, you know, the most blunt answer is I got hit by a van on my motorcycle. And so I learned a bunch of really terrible uh, insights about the healthcare system. And so you know, what really happened is, so I'm a bioethicist, and, and what that means, since it's not super clear, is that I tend to think about ethics and policy issues raised by medicine and healthcare and public health interventions and science. And so a lot of what bioethics does is think about, you know, what's wrong in the current healthcare system, you know, ours or globally somewhere else. And so here, that's my training. That's what I do for a living. I run a graduate program in that field. And then I had this motorcycle accident and I land in the hospital with a traumatic injury. Um, And so I'm going to be in and out of hospitals for weeks or months with a a really long recovery. And it turns out that becoming a patient is a really good way to find, you know, gaps in the healthcare system. (laughs) I say really good way. I should make clear that I don't recommend this as a way to find a a research program. Um, But yeah, so that's what happened to me. And, and then, of course, as I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, I had this, these experiences with pain and pain medicine and particular opioids. And so I learned these things that felt really important. And I had this training. And so for a long time afterwards, I had to kind of sit with it and think, you know, I might be able to contribute something, I might be able to teach people something, I might be able to work with policymakers and institutions on rectifying some of the problems that I discovered, but it would involve making my most private, intimate of stories very, very public. Um, And so I had to make the decision about whether or not to do that. And ultimately, clearly, since we're talking, ultimately, I decided, (laughs) yeah, I was going to do that. So that's, that's how I got here. I decided to make my very private healthcare story 
um, into a book that would maybe hopefully help some people. That's extraordinary. And, and, you know, speaking for your readers, we really appreciate the fact that you turned a personal tragedy into a deep examination of one of the kind of most troubling issues of the American medical system. But before we jump into some of those larger topics, I'd like to discuss what generally drives opioid use and what is really sort of the the, the driving force behind your book, which is pain. So as you write, pain is this really interesting medical phenomenon uh, because unlike things like temperature or blood pressure, uh, there's no real objective way to measure it. And doctors have to take the patient's word for the amount of pain that they're in. And you also write that while pain seems to be located at the point of where bodily damage occurs, pain actually occurs in the brain, which makes it even more subjective. Um, could you talk a little bit about the phenomenon of pain? What is it and how have we come to measure it? Yeah, so this is one of the, the parts that feels very philosophical, you know, so that happens to be my disciplinary background. Um, but pain is weird, right? This is just a feature of it. And if you if you don't think that pain is weird, um, you know, well, reflect on whether or not you've ever heard of um, phantom pain, which is the pain that somebody with an amputation feels, if you ask them, in their non-existent limb, right? So if I've had my left leg amputated, I might still feel pain in my left leg, which of course is impossible on a kind of literal reading since I don't have a left leg. But the explanation then is that, well, pain doesn't actually occur in your limb, pain occurs in your brain. And so pain is this sensation and it's defined by its badness. Um, so it's this particular kind of noxious sensation. Um, and it tends to be associated with damage, with injury. But it doesn't have to, as we realize, right? Because if you don't have a limb, then it can't be that your limb is dam damaged. That makes it hurt. So pain is super weird. It's weird for several reasons. Um, it can exist where you don't have any, you know, body to cause that pain. It can persist long after the damage has healed. Uh, so it shouldn't be there. And you can't show somebody definitive evidence of your pain. Uh, so if I go into the emergency room with a broken arm and say, I think I broke my arm. It hurts really bad. Um, you know, I, I'd love you to, to both give me something for that pain and to fix the broken arm. That's very often what they'll do because they'll take an x-ray, they'll see the break, um, they'll note that that's evidence that I have a certain kind of pain and they'll give me pain relief. And then they'll also address, you know, how to fix that fracture. But if I come in and say, you know, I've got low back pain, well, this is a really notorious kind of pain for discovering the, the actual cause. Uh, and so there are lots of people who live with chronic low back pain where their doctors do some imaging, do some MRIs, do lots of investigation. And at the end, they're kind of like, yeah, that's too bad that you hurt. I'm, I'm not real sure why uh, or if we can fix it. Um, and so then they have to make a decision about whether to medicate that pain. So that's, that's a situation that's already kind of ripe for tension, right? Because we're trying to address something that we don't know for sure if it's real. And then, of course, what you add in is that one of our primary treatments for pain for a good while has been this class of drugs called opioids. And because opioids have what we call abuse liability, which means they cause euphoria, and so they're sought as drugs um, to achieve a high, and they can cause addiction, and they can cause death through overdose. So now you have this risky, dangerous drug that people want, 
for reasons that aren't medically indicated. And when somebody comes in and says that they have a medical indication, you can't know for sure if they do. And that's right. the central tension. That's, that's kind of what launches the puzzle of pain management. Absolutely. That was one of the most interesting points in your book. You know, as you note, uh, pain medicine is tasked with this really profoundly difficult job of treating a subjective system based on self-reported evidence that is inherently flawed. Uh, you talk a little bit about the pain scale as the way that doctors have to show uh, or to understand, I guess, how patients are responding to their treatments or what kind of pain that they're in. Can you, can you describe a little bit about the pain scale and how it is that patients um, allow doctors to understand the level of pain that they're in? Sure. So the pain scale is this really interesting tool. Um, it's interesting for several reasons. So I imagine almost anybody listening would know this if they've been to the doctor at all in the last 20 years. But the pain scale is this um, very simple tool that physicians or PAs or other clinicians use so a patient says, I'm in pain, they want to get some data on that, right? Because, well, here's this really weird subjective phenomenon. So kind of tell me more about your pain. So one of the things they want to know is the intensity. How bad is your pain? So rate your pain on a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 is no pain at all, and 10 is the worst pain imaginable. So several interesting things about this tool. One is that we try to use it to give data to clinicians so that they then have an idea of what they're working with. And that seems like the most reasonable thing in the world, right? So if you're treating my pain after a traumatic injury like mine, um, you might want to know, is it getting better or worse? Just how bad it is. So if you ask me, you know, after the first surgery I have on my foot, what's your pain level? And I say an eight. Well, eight out of 10 sounds awfully bad. So I'm, I'm conveying to you that it's extreme. And then if you medicate it and ask me later and I say four, well, now you also have another good important piece of data, which is that it's gotten less bad, right? It, the, the pain has gotten better. It's improved. So all of that seems super reasonable, right? But let's go back to the kind of philosophical weirdness of pain. This doesn't actually make pain any more objective than it already was because um, my use of the pain scale is just as subjective as my pain report you know, in any other form. So if Absolutely. I say, if I say, you know, my pain is an eight, you might totally justifiably look at me and say, yeah, but you're kind of a pansy, you know, <laughs> it's, it's probably actually like a four and you just have no pain tolerance. And that, that suspicion, that kind of openness to make that sort of comment reveals, you know, I can't really know like what an eight on the pain scale is from God's perspective, you know, you know, from the perspective of the universe. Okay, so that's the philosophical weirdness of it. And now just one other interesting component. The reason the pain scale exists is because we decided in, in North America in particular to treat pain really aggressively starting in the 90s. And so this is part of a kind of long historical narrative about pain and pain treatment. But the reason we have it, the fact that we use the pain scale is evidence that the healthcare system kind of made a concerted effort, made, made a decision at a point to say, we're going to treat pain as something serious. Um, clinicians, we want you to ask your patients about their pain. And so you're going to need a tool to, to ask that question. So here's the pain scale. Um, and then we even started using it in things like patient satisfaction scores to see how well uh, we were doing at treating pain. So the fact that we have a pain scale is also interesting, 
not just because it's, you know, subjective and philosophically weird, but it exists <laughs> because we decided, hey, we're going to take pain seriously now. Absolutely. And you know, kind of approaching it not only from, from God's perspective, right, of, of what a 10 might be, but you're, you even write about your own experience of actually then understanding what a 10 on the pain scale is for you. And it may be very difficult for an individual to report uh, what the 10 is for them, having not yet experienced it, right? So it is incredibly subjective. But to get to one of your other points, and I'm so glad you brought it up, was that pain has its own history as a phenomenon, especially especially as a medical phenomenon. And pain wasn't always treated as such a big problem, right? You write about the patients' rights movement in the 1980s, where pain patients began advocating, advocating to have their pain taken seriously. And they were so effective to the point where pain eventually became accepted as a fifth vital sign akin to measurable, uh, very concrete things like heart rate, respiration, temperature, and blood pressure. Why did pain become so important for a doctor to treat? And why did it become such a, something that advocates really rallied around? Well, I think that what we saw is we just saw a continuation of a long historical narrative that's existed for at least 150 years where we just kind of bounce back and forth, you know, uh, there's a, a pendulum of opinion regarding pain and its treatment that swings from one end to the other. And so what happened in the 70s and 80s with this sort of advocacy movement, this patient rights movement um, to take pain seriously, they were responding to a very real uh, epidemic of undertreatment of pain because North America had gotten so scared of opioids in particular, because at the very beginning of the 20th century, we had suffered a pretty catastrophic epidemic from the combination of morphine, the invention of the hypodermic syringe, and then heroin. And so, you know, the population and politicians and the medical community were very, very scared of opioids. And this resulted in a lot of just allowing patients to suffer and that's really hard in medicine, especially over the course of the 20th century, as we're getting better at surgery and doing more of them and people are living longer. And so when you live longer, you live long enough to get, you know, cancer at higher rates and, you know, to die of really profoundly painful diseases. So what was happening alongside this advocacy movement was the birth of what basically became the palliative care field. And the folks at the forefront of this movement were saying, look, there are patients dying of end-stage cancer who have zero reason not to be aggressively treating their pain with whatever tools we have. And both the clinicians tending to them are saying, well, I'm not going to give them these addictive, dangerous drugs. And then the patients themselves are often saying, well, yeah, I want my pain treated, but I don't want my family to think I'm an addict, mm. right? And this is perverse. This is really obscene. So the the kind of early, you know, camel's nose under the tent here was this completely reasonable idea that we have powerful pain medications and there are pains that absolutely should be medicated. So let's let's get away from this opioid pho phobia that mm -hmm. we've been in the grips of. So an almost forgotten letter to the editor <laughs> in a medical journal kind of builds upon this palliative care movement that you just described, and it sparks an entire movement in pain treatment. Can you talk a bit about this? Yeah. So there's this history of kind of 
not that interesting or powerful documents in the literature that came to play a really outsized role. And so this part, we should give credit where credit is due. Sam Quinones, the journalist in his book, Mm -hmm. Dreamland, was really the person who I think kind of most compellingly first put all of these pieces together. Um, But yeah, there was this letter to the editor by um, these authors, Porter and Yick, uh, you know, a few sentences long that documented that in a highly controlled um, population that's very small in a single hospital, that the incidence of addiction from, um, let's see, the incidence of addiction from opioids in patients was very low, right? And so this then, this letter, that's not a study, it's not a report, it's a very small population, kind of an interesting observation. It gets picked up Mm -hmm. during this you know, birth of the palliative care movement. And so there's a really important paper that came out by Kathleen Foley and Russell Portnoy, who are two of the founders of this field. Um, And they cite that letter and and they make another observation about low incidence of addiction. And a couple of things that are really important is that in neither of these documents did we have, you know, large scale population level randomized controlled trials showing an actual rate risk of addiction for a population. Um, right, they all occur within the hospital setting, right? Exactly right, exactly right. But this data basically gets picked up, and so the, the rallying cry that forms, specifically going back to the Porter and Yick letter, is that the incidence of opioid addiction when using it to treat pain is less than 1%. That's what mm-hmm. gets picked up. And then, because apparently nobody actually reads the things they cite, um, <laughs> you know, these documents with the letter and then the, the paper by Foley and Portnoy end up getting cited hundreds and in the former's case, thousands of times over the following decades. And, you know, kind of, it's like a game of telephone, you know, in the landmark study by Porter and Yick, you know, and the, you know, and the important report, and remember this was a letter to the editor. Um, and so, yeah, so this ends up not only getting picked up by an advocacy movement, by the medical community at large, but then it gets picked up by pharma, right? Mm-hmm. And so the people who are financially invested in getting more drugs into the hands of patients start to use this same data point. So all roads seem to lead to OxyContin when we are discussing opioids in the United States. Uh, it is kind of impossible to avoid the names Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. What's the story of this drug? Uh, we hear about it all the time, but what's its history and what were its effects? So Purdue Pharma played this really interesting role because it needn't have been a big deal. Um, Purdue Pharma was a pretty small company is in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, they already had an opioid drug for cancer relief that they had patented in the 80s. It was MS Contin. And so content here means continuous release. So these are extended release drugs. That technology is actually quite useful, especially for cancer patients, which was the indication for MS content, because they're going to have, you know, profound pain around the clock. And as I found out of my own experience, when you're going to have extended periods of really severe pain, the worst thing is to have the medication peter out, like in the middle of the night. And so by the time it wakes you up, you're behind the pain. And so, you know, you end up doing these really sick things like setting your alarm to wake up every four hours to take medication so that you don't get behind the pain, Mm. right? 
So this can you can, define that behind the pain? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually even kind of hate using the term. <laughs> so, so it, on the one hand, it feels like a very real phenomenon. So in my own experience, a couple of times, you know, doctors would say, "Oh, your pain got so severe and out of hand because you got behind the pain," which means that I under-medicated until it was incredibly severe, and I was, you know, twisting and, and moaning or yelling. Um, and then what you have to do is you have to medicate incredibly heavy to really take the edge off this, this pain that's ballooned. And so this is kind of like the reason I'm, I'm almost uncomfortable using it, but it's just so handy to describe that scenario, um, is because that then gets used as advice to patients. Don't get behind the pain, you know, don't let it get out of hand. And that, especially in my case, led to me just kind of popping pills every four hours, not waiting for the pain to tell me whether I needed it. I was, I was scared to get behind it. And so it was almost like preemptively taking the medication on a schedule instead of waiting until it hurt. So that's that's why there's like tension with this use. Um, but there is a, a fairly well-known, call it a theory among clinicians, that if you get behind the pain, it's much harder to treat. Um, your patients are going to be much less comfortable. You have to use higher doses, which are riskier. So yeah, like don't get behind the pain. That is a pretty mm -hmm. common view. What also surprised me when I was reading your book was who dispenses the bulk of opioid pain medication? Where do most Americans get their opioids from and why? Yeah. Um, so you might think that you get them from pain docs or from surgeons, right? Surgeons cause a lot of pain with their, their knives and pain docs are the ones who have pain in their titles. Um, but they see such a small percentage relative to the number of patients. And so for most of the aggressive prescribing period in the 21st century, uh, the ranking of um, opioids prescribed by volume, the clear winner is general practitioners, family docs. And so you think about, you know, most of the country, uh, there are people who are just seeing their, their doctor for aches and pains as they get older, lower back pain, injuries from sports, you name it. Um, and then following that was actually dentists and oral surgeons, because for a very long time, you know, as a result of this message to prescribe aggressively, um, dentists and oral surgeons would prescribe bottles of immediate release opioids like oxycodone or hydrocodone for every tooth they pulled. You know, you get a wisdom tooth extracted, you get a bottle of Vicodin, you get a bottle of Percocet. Um, yeah, so surgeons and, and pain docs, you know, prescribe a lot of opioids to their patients that they see, or at least they, they did for quite a while. Um, but most opioids were actually dispensed by general practitioners, and then a huge amount of any immediate release opioids were prescribed by dentists and oral surgeons. I have a dentist appointment this afternoon. Mm. I'm almost a little terrified to go now. No, <laughs> just a cleaning. I should be okay. Yeah, it's just um, a cleaning. You should be all right. You should be all right. <laughs> now, to talk a little bit about a little bit more about your personal experience with opioids, um, could you describe the kind of injuries you sustained and what kind of pain treatment regimen you were put on after your accident? So the the acute injury was to my left foot and it was crushed between the van that hit me and my motorcycle. So the nature of the accident was I was driving straight on a street and a van blew a stop sign and pulled out into me. So I, I got T-boned by this van. So it was a crush injury and crush injuries are pretty catastrophic. 
they cause all sorts of bone damage and then all sorts of soft tissue damage. So in my case, the the big bone that connects the big toe to the ankle, so that's the first metatarsal, it shattered into just what looked like thousands of little pieces on the x-ray. And it shattered with such force that it blew a hole out through the bottom of my foot. So there were other broken bones too, um, broken bones too. There, the, the big and the second and the third toe all broke as well. But this first metatarsal break caused all of this soft tissue damage. And so things that I know now that I had no reason to know before then was that um, when you have that sort of injury, you are put into what's called a limb salvage situation because it's unclear whether or not the surgeons are going to be able to kind of pull your foot back together um, so that the bones will form something like a normal skeleton if they're able to do that. And that's handled by an orthopedic trauma surgeon. Well, then you still have the problem of this huge hole in your body. And it turns out, you know, when you lose a lot of flesh, you can't just stitch the wound closed. Um, So I have this problem that plastic surgeons have to handle and so the, the live question at the beginning was, would they have to amputate my foot to, you know, well, to save my life ultimately, but that's fairly dramatic. But yeah, would they have to amputate my foot as therapy, as treatment? And I was incredibly fortunate in the sense that all of the work they did ended up saving my foot. You know, so at the very end of, you know, what turned out to be a total of six months of, of surgeries, um, I, I still have my foot and it's somewhat functional and I was really lucky in that way. That's but extraordinary. It, it's, it's incredible. And especially when you have the details, right? Because how they plugged that hole is they took a bunch of tissue from my thigh and transplanted it onto the foot. And so it's not just a skin graft where they take a layer of skin to close a wound. They, there was so much space there. They took muscle and fat to fill in the hole and protect the newly structured bones and then you have so much tissue there that you have to vascularize it. And so they clipped out an artery and microsurgically transplanted the artery into the foot. And then because that's a, a, a big part of my foot and they want, me to be, they want me to be able to sense damage, you know, if I step on a nail or hot coals or something. So they clipped out a nerve from my thigh and microsurgically transplanted that into this new tissue on the foot. And then they closed it all up with a big swath of skin. So, so this is tissue. extraordinary, right? This you're you're actually amazing. dealing then with 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 two enormous series of of traumatic injuries, one caused by uh, a terrible driver. I really hope that person lost his license, uh, and then of course all of the uh, the site of the surgery where you have to have all of all of that. Um, musculature and nerves and, and all these things removed from your thigh. So you have had two major, major uh, series of surgeries on two different parts of your body. You're obviously in a ton of pain. Um, so how is that treated in the hospital and how is it treated at home? What were, what were you told to do? Yeah. So, so the kind of most relevant part of how severe the injury is, is precisely that when you have that many surgeries, when it goes on for that long, so for me, the first five surgeries, the limb salvage ones, um, you know, occurred over the course of four weeks in three different hospitals. You know, every time they cut on you, every time they have to stuff something into that hole in your foot, you know, to keep it from getting infected, you know, it's always re-traumatizing the wound. And then they have to cut into your thigh to harvest all this tissue. And then you have a new major site of injury. And so, yes, it's, it's excruciatingly painful, increasingly painful as they cut away dead tissue, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so the thing that I really learned is that reconstructions of this sort, really complex, you know, surgical series that occur over time, they have as this basically necessary consequence, at least with today's technology, that you'll be on opioids for a long time. Hmm. Because there's nothing else that's going to treat the level of pain in our toolkit um, that you can kind of take perpetually. So after the surgeries, so every, you know, for three days or five days or 10 days, however long I was in the hospital after each surgery, I'm taking the, the same sorts of oral opioids that, you know, lots of folks have taken oxycodone, um, the extended release form, oxycontin. But then also after the surgeries, when the pain's especially atten- intense, I'm in the hospital, I'm hooked up to IV medication. And so I'm getting, I'm getting the really good stuff, either morphine, fentanyl, or hydromorphone, which is the generic for Dilaudid. And so the doses are pretty extraordinary kind of right off the bat because it's all of this pain that you're having to medicate around the clock, right? But the thing about opioids is that they have this property, which is that they develop, you, your body develops tolerance to them. Your brain and central nervous system develops tolerance to them. And so pretty quickly, especially when you're on them around the clock, you know, your brain's job as a learning machine is to adapt to the environment that it finds itself in. And so if you flood your brain's receptors with, you know, exogenous opioids, opioids that don't come from your body that, that are foreign to it, the brain goes, "Uh oh, I better change so that I don't react so violently every time I get this stuff. And that means that really quickly, you have to start increasing the dose to get the same effect because your brain's trying to reduce the effect. So you're actually fighting your own opioid system to continue to get the same analgesic effects, right? So that's the property of tolerance. So basically over the course of two months altogether, I was on constantly increasing doses to try to mitigate this pain that was constantly being, you know, less medicated because of the property of tolerance. Now, this is pretty extraordinary, right? Because you essentially become the subject of that letter to the editor and the Foley uh, uh, experiment, right? You become someone hospitalized for intensely acute pain. You're supposed to be the 1% who does not get uh, addicted or dependent, right? And yet you find yourself developing this tolerance. Um, What happened to your body when you continued on opioids? And what made you want to get off of the medication? The primary driver for me wanting to get off the medication is that opioids are not entirely fun. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, people joke a lot about, you know, certain kinds of drugs like, oh, you got some Percocet? I'll take some of those, take the edge off, right? Um, Because the idea is that, well, these drugs are ones that have, quote, abuse liability. They can cause euphoria. They are, you know, they cause euphoria. They cause, um, sorry, let me go back. Uh, These drugs can cause euphoria. And so you can take them to pursue a high, but they also cause lots of other things. And so side effects of opioids include really severe constipation. And if that sounds like kind of a comically, you know, small side effect to deal with, it's not, um, you can, you, you know, opioids are, are basically sedatives of a, of a sort. And so one of the things they sedate is your digestive system. And if you stop digesting food, then you just get bricks in your gut and it can become mm-hmm. so severe 
that you have to have emergency surgery to remove a bowel blockage, right? So this wow. is this is not like a joke. And nurses, especially in hospitals, if you're on opioids, the nurses are incredibly concerned with whether or not you have bowel movements because they want to know, you know, are you at risk for a bowel, uh, bowel blockage? Mm. So that's a really uncomfortable side effect of prolonged opioid use, but also it's a sedative. And another thing that sedates is, um, well, consciousness. So you're sleepy all the time. Uh, you have a hard time kind of engaging with the world. And I had a one and a half year old at home and, and a partner that I'd like to have been present for. So I was tired of being not present and, and not part of my family. But it also sedates your respiratory system. Mm-hmm. And this is the mechanism that causes overdose. And so if you take a sufficiently high dose of opioids, you sedate your respiratory system to such a degree that you don't only you know, breathe less and less, but you eventually stop breathing. And that's when you overdose. And if it goes on long enough, your brain dies. Mm. So it's not to say that everyone who goes home on like regular doses of opioids has to worry about dying from their standard dose. But I was on very high doses, which means that I would take a dose and my breathing would get slower. And especially Sadia, my partner, you know, she would sit by me and just listen and make sure that I didn't stop breathing. And that's, that's terrifying to put, you know, to, to wow. put your family, put people you love through that sort of thing. Um, so especially in the hospital, you know, you're on these high IV doses and I would sometimes be woken up by the nurses who would put me through breathing exercises to make sure that my brain was still getting oxygen. How awful that you had come so close to death in the accident. And here you were once again, coming close to death uh, because of the medication to help you heal from the accident. That's, that's terrifying. It's a terrifying experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the hospital, this is a fairly safe, controlled environment. Yes, they have to use high doses of opioids, but they have you on an oxygen monitor. And so if, as happened to me occasionally, you know, my oxygen would dip and dip and dip and it would get below 80%. And then the nurses would concernedly, but very competently come in, wake me up and say, nope, you can't sleep right now. You have to breathe, do your exercises, you know, wake your brain up. Um, and of course, they have naloxone on hand, which can reverse an overdose. So, mm-hmm. so it's not that you know every time you're in a hospital taking opioids, you're close to death. But, but that's the <laughs> same mechanism, right? And it's scary when you realize what's happening. It's really quite uncomfortable. So, all of those are good reasons for not wanting to be on opioids, especially um, if you don't find the euphoria particularly worth pursuing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what's What's worth noting about my case is the euphoria and the analgesia or the pain relief, like the two good things that you get from opioids. They are very, very good. But I had lots of other things in my life that I find good, like family and a career. And and I was desperate to get back to those things. And so what's really worth kind of thinking about is not everybody who takes opioids has the same kind of good fortune that I did. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But before we before we move to that subject, one of the most striking aspects of your book is that you write in detail about your experience detoxing from opioid use. And this is really the first time I had read a very personal, very detailed account about this process. It's a hard segment to read because your suffering for the reader is painted in a very real way. The, the image of you in your basement is, it really stayed with me. Um, so can you talk a bit about that experience? What was it like? Yeah, it stayed with me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so 
what I wanted to do, and you know, before I wrote the book, I, I actually did a TED talk um, based on an article that I wrote in 2017 for the journal Health Affairs, and it gets a decent amount of play in the world I live in now. You know, in health policy and medicine, and and work on opioids and pain management, and the reason I do all of these things, the reason I wrote the article, which was very hard to share, it was the first time I, I wrote about my story. And then the reason I was willing to give a TED talk, which of course, you know, you're actually giving a performance on video, so it feels even more invasive. And then, you know, wanting to do it in detail as a as a you know trade press book that that I hope that a lot of people would read. The motivation here is precisely to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> and, it worked. Great job. <laughs> great success. Um, you know what? What happened to me is that I basically was incompetently tapered off very high dose opioids, and and it didn't have to be that way. You know, some basic knowledge and some willingness by any one of dozens of clinicians that that I asked for help could have mitigated my suffering. But part of why I think it doesn't get acknowledged is because there's this idea, both among the public and among doctors, that opioid withdrawal just isn't that bad. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's uncomfortable but not deadly. This is actually a line that I was given by a clinic clinician friend of mine that this is what you're taught in med school. You know, benzo withdrawal can kill you, alcohol withdrawal can kill you. Opioid withdrawal is just uncomfortable. That's mm. the kind of message they get. And you know, I've seen opioid withdrawal on TV. You know, somebody is addicted to heroin and they decide to detox and go cold turkey and then they sweat for a couple of days and they throw up a little bit and it's very uncomfortable to watch for all 90 seconds until they, thank God, wake up the next day and are okay, right? <laughs> and and that's what I wanted to counter because you can't properly do the cost-benefit analysis of asking the healthcare system to take care of opioid patients if you don't understand the costs. And we seemingly didn't understand the cost that withdrawal can be catastrophic, that it can be absolutely devastating. It can overturn your life. It can drive you back to the medication that you're withdrawing from. And, you know, in my case, it can lead you to start thinking about suicide as mm. the only reasonable, the only rational option, because part of withdrawing is not just these physiological symptoms that most people have a handle on. You get these very flu-like symptoms and you get the jitters and there's a lot of insomnia that goes with it because you're kind of hyperactive. Um, but the process of withdrawing from a drug is the opposite of the drug's effects. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you get um, sedated by opioids. And so you're kind of, yeah, you're kind of hyperactive in this weird way. You get jitters and tremors that keep you awake. Um, and then instead of being constipated, you have diarrhea and nausea and vomiting, and you get these kind of systemic flu-like symptoms. Um, so instead of feeling well, you feel incredibly ill. But opioids also cause euphoria, and the opposite of that is dysphoria. And so if you talk to 100 different people who've been through opioid withdrawal, they'll all describe it differently for you know how the psychology worked out for them. But a lot of people, it's anxiety. For some, it's depression. For some, it's crying bouts. So for me, it was really this incredibly devastating depression. And when your brain turns on you in this way, you don't know that you're ill and you just believe that you have insight into how broken you are. 
Mm. And so that's what eventually happened to me is I was physically completely broken. I was sick. I was miserable. I, every moment of withdrawal was worse than anything else I'd been through, including having my foot blown apart. And it was lasting for weeks and for mostly 24 hours a day because you just stopped sleeping for most of it. And on top of that, I was developing this profound depression on which I believed that no one knew. My, my partner didn't know, you know, none of my doctors knew. They didn't understand how broken I was, but I could see it from the inside. Mm. And when you can see it, you just know that you'll never be better. And then it's just not unreasonable to start thinking like, well, I guess I'll have to kill myself at some point. Because if life is just constant suffering and the only thing you bring to the people around you and the people you love is more misery, well, suicide starts to feel like a pretty rational response. Now, you didn't give up completely as you're going through this, and neither did your partner, Sadia. You're both trying to find help. You're both reaching out to doctors. You're trying to figure out how to do this in a way that is causing less misery for you, for your family. And now you also work with a lot of people in the medical field. You know, but the people, but, but you know, the doctors that you were talking to, they, they really didn't know what to tell you. Uh, and as I said before, you work with a lot of people in the medical field. Why aren't more doctors versed in the process of detoxing patients from opioids? Do you see this as a failure of medical education, a lack of response to the current situation, or what? All of it, yeah. So there's definitely a lack of education. And so one of the things that I, I tell you know clinicians when I give talks and such is, um, I know that there's a lack of knowledge, and that can explain part of it. And so my prescribing physician, for instance, is the one who gave me the, the tapering plan that led to all the suffering. And he eventually just apologized and mm. said, look, I'm sorry, I didn't know what I was doing. And, and I'm clearly out of my depth. And you need to find someone better than me to just like go back on the med, stabilize and find someone. But he was saying that at the same time that we'd already spent days or weeks calling people to try to find someone better than him. And some of them clearly also had that education deficit. But a bunch of them, whether or not they had the education deficit, they also just were never going to talk to us. And so there's this other thing that's going on, which is that withdrawal associates in people's mind with addiction. Mm -hmm. When you see somebody withdrawing and they're shaky and they're sweaty and they're vomiting and they're saying, the opioids did this to me, all that we can draw up in our mind is uh, a really stigmatized picture that we've learned from our culture of the addict, right? Mm -hmm. And well, doctors like everybody else in this country just don't want to deal with that group of people. And so there's this huge stigma around it. And eventually I was told to go see addiction medicine, that that was the, you know, the kind of proper indication here. But that's pretty extreme, right? Because addiction of the kind that is dealt with largely by addiction medicine is defined by all these behavioral components about compulsion is defined by compulsion and craving and acting out of control, even in the face of adverse consequences, you know, people who risk jail and losing their family and losing their jobs in pursuit of a, a drug or activity. And I wasn't dealing with any of that, at least yet. I just was physiological depend, physiologically dependent, which is what happens to everyone who takes enough opioids for a long enough time. And that means I needed help to get through the withdrawal. And what's really kind of crucial about understanding that difference 
is it seems pretty reasonable to think that you, the, the person who prescribes the medication needs to know how to get you off the medication and not just shuffle you off onto somebody else. But that clearly wasn't happening here. As soon as I looked complicated, they wanted to send me to someone else. Right. Now, this channel is called Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery. So obviously, we're very interested in the subject of addiction and drug use. And you write about your experience being dependent on opioids and what that process did to you and your body. But as you've just said, there's a very clear differentiation between dependence and addiction. And there are some options. Um, They're still somewhat problematic, and they're still incredibly stigmatized for those who become addicted to opioids. But for those who are dependent and trying to work their way down away from these medications, as you experience, <laughs> you, you kind of exist in this liminal phase where the medical industry doesn't quite know what to do with you. Do you see this changing anytime soon? Oh, man. Well, you, so you hit the nail on the head, right? That that the, the patients facing dependence are absolutely in a liminal phase, um, which is just really kind of especially terrible, right? Because we already treat addiction medicine and addiction patients with enough stigma and we have enough problems dealing with that. But like, at least we recognize where the failure is, right? So, so yet we need, you know, all the scale up of evidence-based treatment for addiction. We need all the scale up of medication assisted treatment. We need to destigmatize and have compassionate care. But, you know, for me as an ethicist, for somebody working in the space of drugs, like at least we, at least I can kind of understand the failure, like where it's located and where we need to go. What happens with these dependent patients is they need a separate set of interventions, right? Because it's probably not the right thing to do to take routine dependence and treat it with MAT, right? You don't want to take someone who could probably taper off without any behavioral issues and put them on methadone to stay there for you know six months or 12 months or 24 months or however many years, and so, yeah, we need to do something else for these patients to help prevent them from continuing down a track of opioid use disorder. And we don't even recognize that the deficit is there, right? It's one of these problems that we don't even know that we have. Um, so, yeah, you hit the nail on the head, but, but as to whether or not I see it changing, I, I talk about it all the time, you know, so I'm grateful that when hospital administrators and healthcare systems and doctors and conference organizers, when somebody alerts them to my work, their response is very often to invite me to come speak and, and make their community aware of this gap. And I don't think I have ever, at least in the medical profession, given this sort of explanation, told these stories, given the talk, given the case to be made that like, we need interventions for dependence as well as we need interventions for addiction. And we can't see them as the same thing and we need to do them both. Like I've never given that talk and had doctors or hospital administrators be like, no, that's not true. Like, <laughs> like, like they I'm sorry, sir, you're wrong. Yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah. So, yeah. So they all see it, but boy, doing it is hard because you have to deal with both the lack of education and the stigma and it mm. costs money. It would require resources. And I got to be honest, as of yet, I'm still not super hopeful. I'm glad that people are, are talking about it and receptive to the idea, but I do not see system-wide changes. Hmm. That's really uh, 
really extraordinary to me and, and depressing because I had actually read your book when I was on a weekend trip to Canada. Uh, I was beyond the Maple Curtain where there is a very different system of healthcare. And I was really struck by the difference between America's approach to pain treatment and the rest of the developed worlds. So I'm intrigued by the, the idea that the response to your work has been how would you describe it? It, it? It's intrigue almost. It's it's you're you're recognizing that something is going wrong. But do you do you see the United States uh, changing its approach to opioids? What do you see happening in response to your work or in response to these larger issues? There is a lot of talk. Um, you know, everybody, politicians, policymakers, regulators, healthcare systems, nurses, pharmacists, doctors, surgeons. Everybody knows there's a problem. Um, most people are receptive to recognizing their own shortcomings, even if they don't think they're blameworthy. So I'm very careful. You know, when I talk to a group of surgeons or anesthesiologists, I don't say, look, you all did this to me and a million patients like me and shame on you. Like, one, that's not helpful. But two, <laughs> I don't even think it's true, right? They were actors within a system that never made it clear to them what responsibilities really ought to be theirs, right? And so I don't blame my individual doctors, well, maybe a little bit, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, most of the blame really lies with a broken system. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, I lost the thread. I don't know where That's I was That's okay. Yeah. But, uh, but I hear that. Um, so... Essentially, though, your accident was over four years ago now. How are you feeling these days? How's your foot? I'm feeling pretty good, way better than I had any right to expect. Um, whenever I give these interviews, <laughs> my answer kind of depends on the day. Mm. Um, you never fully recover from a really traumatic injury. And so I'll, I'll never be pain-free. And I've made peace with that. It's most people aren't pain-free. It's okay. Um, the, and how the are you of, treating your pain now? Yeah. So that's really the more interesting part because toward the end of working on my book, I did want to have some kind of positive lessons of how we could reshape our pain medicine project in North America, um, what it would look like to have more evidence-based, comprehensive, responsible pain medicine and one of the most surprising things I found in all of the research on my book was the amount of evidence there is for therapies that virtually nobody uses. Uh, <laughs> and, and, like, <laughs> and virtually nobody is a little bit unfair, right? But our, our system is completely set up not to encourage exercise, yoga, physical therapy, even You even talked about acupuncture. Exactly. Yes. Even acupuncture, right? as real pain medicine, as real pain therapy. Um, and there's really good evidence. Like this is not new age hokey, you know, nonsense. This is evidence-based good medicine. And the thing for me that helped more than anything else is exercise. And it's wow. hard and it's terrible because I want more than anything to be able to just take a pill <laughs> and, and not have to go to the gym. Um, <laughs> but if I can be really good about my physical therapy and exercise program, you know, for two, three, four months at a time, 
I get really close to pain-free for a while as long as I keep it up. And then I get busy and I travel too much and too many deadlines loom and I stop going to the gym and I get lazy and I'm just like, oh, this is just way too hard. (laughs) And it all comes crashing back down. And I think to myself, oh, this is why I, this is why people like pills. It would just be way easier. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and of course, not every pain responds to the same therapy. So the idea here is not that everybody could be treated with a little bit of exercise. Like that's nonsense. But you know, we have a really comprehensive set of pharmacological and non-pharmacological approaches to treating pain, and most of them are not taught, recognized, respected, or reimbursed by payers Mm. like insurance, right? Right. Um, And that's a huge problem, and especially because most of them are are what I do now to to treat my own pain. Well, I really do hope that the results of the publication of this book are such that these alternative approaches to treating pain become more widely accepted. Uh, I think you're doing doing the Lord's work, working in a (laughs) university setting, in a medical school, and by bringing these issues to light and and making them very approachable, but also very, very... um, devastating for for readers and listeners to your TED Talk and to the students and doctors I'm sure you're working with. So, you know, I really want to thank you for writing this book and for bringing it to our attention. Uh, I also know that we've taken up a lot of your time, and I'm sure you have lots of things to do. But before we let you go, I'd love to know what your next project will be. What are you planning on working on next? Oh, that's so nice of you to ask. Um, Well, I am doing a lot of essay writing at the moment because I want to continue thinking about pain and pain medicine and addiction and drugs and North America's broader drug overdose crisis. And so, you know, it's a little bit unusual for a professor to spend so much of his time writing for the public rather than writing for peer-reviewed literature. Um, But I really want to be talking to everybody right now and not just my colleagues. And so I'm doing a lot of writing Uh, in that more popular vein. But I do have a new book project that will change gears somewhat. Um, And it's still in very early stages. But um, I think the way to to describe what I'm working on next, that doesn't lock me into too much or give away too much (laughs) before I've sold it to a publisher, is um, that I'm really gratified by the degree to which people responding to in pain want to actually talk about ethics in a way that's accessible to the public. And so, Mm. yes, we we talk a lot about pain and opioids, but, you know, what I bring to this conversation is that I'm trained as an ethicist. And, um, and so I have a very particular view about how to, how to analyze arguments and to think about, you know, one of my favorite sections of the book to write was to, to bring philosophy of addiction to the conversation about the ethics of harm reduction, you know, like, should we give clean syringes to people who use drugs? I think the answer is clearly yes. And a whole bunch of the population thinks the answer is clearly no. And the reason is based on a foundational difference in the moral philosophies we carry around. Mm -hmm. So all of that's like a long preamble to the idea that I want to do something that's a more concerted effort to say, like, let's all do ethics more in the public space. And there have been you know, these very popular books to take disciplines and subfields into the mainstream, like economics, you know, um, people like Daniel Kahneman uh, are are writing very popular books about a pretty geeky subject matter and making it accessible. (laughs) And I'd like to do something like that with ethics. Um, So that's the next project. 
Well, that sounds awesome. And I am all for professors writing for the public audience and not just for minimally read peer reviewed literature. <laughs> so bring it on. Um, well, I really want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it as well. 